Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. So the Stackwaddy game will begin with the Stackwaddy game. Um, and the category that I've chosen from here is Motownish vocal groups. Okay. Motownish yep, yep, yep. female vocal groups. Okay. And I'm gonna give you I'm going to give you three. Okay, go on. Now I know I know a okay. few, so I might might be able to rumble them, but I okay. don't know. Go on. Here are the three. The fascinations, the debutantes, and the velvolettes. The fascinations, the debutantes, and the velvolettes. The velvolettes are a real group. I know that for a fact because I have heard the velvolettes. The fascinations and the debutantes. It's between those two. Um that's very good. I would have thought debutantes, I think, sounds like a little bit more of a kind of um, uh, a, a sophisticated kind of white middle class concept. And I wonder if fascinations might be slightly more motown. I'm going, Dave, my final answer without phoning <laughs> a friend. Yeah. My final answer is I'm going for the fascinations as being the. Uh, as, no, sorry, I'm going for the debutantes as the, as the, as the made up one. You're correct. Hey, they, they are made up. I should have I should have done my mix slightly differently because the interesting thing about these names that always strikes me is that most of the you know these groups were kind of formed in very often in housing projects in, in Detroit in, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. in the sixties. You know they they came from not the most advantaged backgrounds. Very often these groups. But they tended to choose names which were uh, which were redolent of sophistication and long white gloves and you know and long evening dresses and so forth. It always really interests me. Whereas, you know, kind of middle class white groups, you know, they give themselves names like kind of I don't know, Tucky Buzzard or Gut Bucket or <laughs> you know whatever or Stackwaddy. You know, they sound rootsy. Whereas these people went completely the other way. So yeah, the debutantes were made, was made up. I should have included, I should have included the Elgins 
who of course were a real um, Motown group, the Elgins. And the Elgins just sounds like, that really does sound like a bunch of debutants, doesn't it? It but, does, the Elgins. Do you okay. know, Brian Eno has a choir not far from here in, in Notting Hill Gate, actually not far from where I am now, called the Elgin Marvels. Oh, very good. That's, That's a good name, isn't it? My favourite, but there was a, a Motown girl group, I think, called the Lollipops. Am I right? That's a great name. Yeah, I'm <laughs> sure there's made. Love. Okay, look, the category I'm going to go for, let me try out this, is Eurovision. Okay? All oh, right, okay. So three Eurovision groups, one of which is fictitious. Okay. And I give you Electro Velvet. That's the first. Lederhosen <laughs> is the second. And Vanilla Ninja, the third. Okay, I'll, I give. I read those again. Electro Velvet, Lederhosen, and Vanilla Ninja. Well, I think Vanilla Ninja were real. Um, Why do you think that? You just. I, do, I just space. do because you kind of. Yeah, I don't know. You could. I don't believe you could produce that. As the Americans so colourfully say, I don't think you could pull that out of your ass. Uh, so, <laughs> um, well, you're okay. absolutely right. It was not pulled out of anybody's ass. They are real. They were. They are real. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're from so I have to, I have Switzerland. Oh, uh, really? This century in 2005. Go I on. have to describe decide between Electro Velvet and Lederhosen. Oh, good grief! I'm going to say Lederhosen were made up. You've rumbled me. Oh. They were. Maybe it was just too. Maybe it was too obvious. <laughs> they were. No, Electro Velvet was a UK entry in 2000. Oh yes, 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 yes. There yes. we are. But later, it just seemed too obvious, didn't it? But uh, I, I thought there was a possibility that I might have hoodwinked you. Too trite to make up, isn't it? Really, it's too it is. terrible. To, also, it's to too self. Up. It's too self mocking, isn't it? Lederhosen. Yeah, 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 yeah. I can't see it. Cultural stereotype. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is Word, podcasting for the lockdown. We're not going on a summer holiday. Well, here we are once again, communicating from our attics via two coca tins and a bit of string, as we have been doing through the duration. And occasionally with the help of, of old colleagues and mates, haven't we, Mark? Well, we've been recording virtually every day, actually. I mean, my God, we've been we've been productive, and we don't. I think we have. And we've well, had one bit of the economy that is still cycling <laughs> away like crazy, producing nothing at all. But go on. We consider ourselves to be key workers. We, you know, we've had uh, who we had recently. We had Paul DeNoyer, who is our old pal from Word and Mojo and Q, who is terrific. We have uh, Steve Lamack. We've just recorded Matthew Priest, the the uh, the wonderful drummer from Dodgy. Um, we've, uh, we've done tons of them, haven't we? But, and, uh, and, I, and actually, if you haven't seen them, two things. If you haven't seen them, please do do go and look on YouTube under Word in Your Ear, and you'll see them all there. You can you can enjoy them. And, and frankly, people have been kind enough to say that they have enjoyed them, and they've posted comments. And as ever, if you if you see these things, please post comments, favourable ones, preferably tickers, promoters, sharers, subscribe to our Patreon feed, whatever, of which more later. But the second thing I want to mention, Mark Ronson, dance music Svengali, the man with the, with the mind as touch, his new single is a version of Richard Thompson's I Want to See the Bright Lights Tonight. From Which is the most peculiar combination, isn't it? 
Oh, well, I none, would have none more, so. none more organic uh, than than uh, than Richard Thompson, particularly that record, and none more uh, synthesized and some would say artificial <laughs> well, <laughs> than, than Ronson. You know. Uh, so anyway, so I haven't heard it yet. What's it like? Well, it's kind of it, it's it's you know in the international language of kind of uh, dance music Esperanto. You know, it kind of it it means as much or as little in Buenos Aires as it means in London. You know what I mean? It's completely non-specific. You know, it fits absolutely everywhere. I mean, it's it's you know go go and find it on YouTube. Go and we'll put the link under this under this podcast. Go and listen to it. And you know, best of luck to Richard Thompson, who who has got a pension windfall, such as such as you know, most of us can only dream of. You know, so there's going to be a large, there's going to be a bloke at the you know knock at the door, and there'll be four blokes each carrying a corner of a large. Best of luck to Richard. Of actual cash, <laughs> absolute block of cash, and uh, but the funny thing is, the original record. It um, came out in 1974, I think. And, and Linda Thompson sings it. I always thought she sang it like somebody wearing a shawl. You know, she sang it like, yes. somebody, like a Gracie Fields mill girl on the cobbles of Blackburn or Dewsbury or Batley or whatever. Some kind of mill town. And it's all about, you know, if you've got the cab fare, mister, you'll do all right. I want to see the bright lights tonight. A couple of drunken nights fall, uh, falling on the floor, just the kind of mess I'm looking for. If you've got the cat for her, you'll do all right. I want to see the bright lights tonight. And But the really odd anomaly is that on the original record, it features the CWS, Cooperative Wholesale Society, uh, Silver Band. That's right. There is an actual band playing on the record. There's an actual yeah, band yeah. playing on the record. Yeah. And I can't help but think that he kind of probably rewrote the lyrics in the studio to reflect the fact that they had a silver band on it. You know, so you see there's a silver band just marching up and down and you hear them play. And, you know, that's a very evocative thing for somebody like me, particularly who grew up in, in the north of England in the 50s and 60s, when you did hear silver bands marching up and down you know it's not uncommon whereas the amazing thing is it's still there in the 2020 version which is as i said you know all kind of national idiosyncrasies completely smoothed out of it it's, except <laughs> that it's still there that is an unimaginable cultural collision isn't it it's, it's absolutely re- extraordinary it, it's really odd and, and also i thought to myself is this the longest delay between somebody writing something and a payday since Nick Lowe wrote What's So Funny About Peace, Love and Understanding for Brinsley Schwartz in whenever it was, I don't know, early was, 70s or something like that. And then it turned out... who was it? Guns N' Roses? Who covered no, it? No, it's, no, not Guns it's even more... No, it's Curtis Steigers. That's right, yeah. Curtis Steigers, I think it's an instrumental version of it which pops up very briefly in the movie The Bodyguard, but was on the soundtrack album. And the soundtrack album was, for a while, the biggest selling record in history. It sold millions. Nick Nick, Nick got an enormous check for that. Right, it was Curtis Steiner's. A massive check. And... uh... To the extent that uh, one must feel tempted to kind of to, to sit in a deck chair for <laughs> for five years and just read old P.G. Woodhouse novels and drink martini. But I suppose that's the nature, isn't it? It's kind of interesting. It's the nature of a kind of musician's lot. 
and songwriters a lot is that they labor and they labor and they labor. They do loads of things. The overwhelming majority of things they do never produce a penny of profit, but very occasionally. Just one thing. Just one. That's right. One thing logs in. Which, which they very often have nothing to do with. They just send it out there. And and the next thing, I mean, because Nick Lowe only knew about this when it was already on the soundtrack, didn't he? Yeah. I don't think, I don't think he even knew about it. Richard Thompson probably knew about this thing, you know. But imagine getting that call from your music publisher saying, <laughs> saying oh, Richard, I tell you what, no, 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 nothing, nothing. No, just wondering how you're getting on during yeah. lockdown, you know. Don't, listen, I don't want you to get way, too, <laughs> I don't want you get too excited. I don't want you to go mad or anything like this. But, like, you know, there is a talk of, and it may just be talk, Richard. So. <laughs> You know, it may just be talk, but there is a version of it. You remember your song, I oh, Want to See the Rock Brothers? Oh, yes. Uh, uh, and it's now got a lockdown significance. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Which has not escaped you. You know, yeah. you've probably thought about reissuing it yourself. I tell you what, Richard, don't do that. Don't do that. Better idea. There's a chap called, have you heard of Mark Ronson? Because Richard Thompson is a very clued up person, and he will have heard of Richard, oh, yeah. uh, Mark Ronson. And, uh, well, he's thinking about... In fact, he's already done it. He's doing a version of your song. At which point, Richard Thompson drops the phone. He goes and shouts to the wife, you know, buy a bigger house. We're moving house. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> You're going. Broad forever. He's just off the phone. Yeah. Around, capering around the garden. A better <laughs> bottle of wine this evening. <laughs> no, yeah. no, there won't be much of that. No, there won't Shade, be very much of that. Shade Thompson. But so... Uh, Anyway, it must be extraordinary to get those kind of calls. Uh, and so, absolute best of luck to all concerned. Fantastic. And I hope they... I'm uh, thrilled for it. I hope they all make a fortune out of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're listening to The Word Podcast. It's a lockdown lock-in. Can you see what I've got there, Mark? Can you see can. what I've got there? I can. What does it say? What does it, it say? Says the, it says The Rolling Stone. Re- uh, the Rolling Stone Record Review, Volume 2. Okay. okay. So this is a very old book. This is published in the 1970s. Um, I don't know the exact date. And so this is an old review from Rolling Stone. I'm going to read you the last paragraph, okay? And you're going to tell me, if you can, who the record is by, okay? I'm imagining this is going to be phenomenally damning, and it's going to be a record that went on to be hugely successful. I may be wrong, but go on, try me. Final paragraph, final two paragraphs. Truth be told, I listened to the entirety of this record no less than a dozen times before touching typewriter to paper. Nice little nice little ancient touch there. Ultimately managing to come up with only one happy thing to say about it. He still sings awfully pretty, and often even touchingly. For the most part, though, he seemingly lost sight of what once made his music uniquely compelling and evocative and become just another pretty singing solo superstar, which can't help but bring me down. Who's that and what's the record? Who's uh, it? It's going to be either Paul Simon or it's going to be uh, James Taylor. No, you're uh, wrong in both cases. Okay. But you're in the right area. It's a singer-songwriter. Okay. It's going to be Cat Stevens. No, one more guess. Um, go on, tell me. 
For the most part, though, he seemingly lost, lost sight of what once made his music uniquely compelling and evocative. <laughs> it can't Neil, be Dylan. Neil Young, Harvest. Oh, you're kidding! John, John Mendelssohn in, uh, in March 1972, uh, writing about uh, Neil Young's Harvest. So John Mendelssohn, after that came out, John Mendelssohn had to have gone and changed his name by deed poll. And uh, hidden under a giant mattress for about two years. Yeah, I don't know. Probably not. We've all written, you know, we've all been wrong about records, have we, loads of times. It's just, it's the key, it's the, what's interesting is the contrast between his kind of, uh, his pronouncement that this kind of is the end, you know what I mean? This will go nowhere. This is a dead yeah. end. Yeah, and it. the contrast between that and the absolutely staggering, staggering success, success, which still goes on to this day. You know. It's still selling. Yes, it probably is. So uh, you you were um, you you sent me a picture of Robert Johnson. Oh no, I was going to mention there was a piece in Vanity Fair. Did you see? Did you read that piece? It's really interesting. I thought I did. Vanity about Fair about Robert Johnson and about a new book that's come out, <clears throat> written by his um, his stepsister. Uh, Annie Anderson, a book called uh, Brother Robert. And the key thing for me is there's a new picture of Robert Johnson. This is a man who's born in 1911. I think to date there have only been three known photographs of him. And all of them are slowly unravelling our mental image of Johnson as the kind of haunted troubadour, consumed by existential woe and pursued by baying hellhounds, which was the legend that began, you know, didn't it, in 1961, when there were no pictures of him. Because you and I will remember the record came out called The King of the Delta Blues Singers in 1961. And what was on the cover? It was a painting. A a very bad. Of the back of a man standing, a back of a blues singer, sitting... Sitting kind of in a courtyard, apparently. That's right. I haven't got it in front of me. That's right. The, the sun beating down on them as he as he sang his songs of, as you say, existential angst. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and then uh, 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 the first picture appeared, I think it was in the 1970s, of him, you know, the one with a kind of haunted look and there's a cigarette dangling from the corner of his mouth, and uh, which, again, shored up that whole uh, the whole image. And then the second one, which was used on the cover of the 1990s Complete Recordings, where he's sitting on a stool and he's... got a uh, nice suit on, hasn't he? Very he's got nice. a very nice suit. Got and a, a hat. Very, looking very dapper and he's got a suit and he's kind of sort of smiling. And this third one was taken in a photo booth in Memphis in 1930. And he is, I mean, he's genuinely grinning, which makes you think that the next one he'll be, you kind of, you know, swinging around lampposts and uh, wearing a kind of comedy false nose and, uh, and dancing with Gene Kelly. So it's, it's starting to, to ruin the whole, the whole concept because it was based on the idea, that, A, that there was no picture of him at all, and also that we knew nothing about him. You know, when I was a kid, all you knew about Robert Johnson was he was an itinerant musician. He played in bars and he, he played in... in in, in juke joints. Um, he did two recording sessions, didn't he? he recorded 29 so, songs. Yeah. Um, and then he was known to disappear for various periods of time. Which they now think, in fact, that what he was actually doing was living and studying in Memphis. <laughs> but, but, but he went away for such a long time at one point and came back with such an advanced technique that the, the general rumour was that he had sold his soul to the devil <laughs> oh, in exchange for a supernatural, otherworldly talent. And actually, of course, the more we discover about him, it, we, it emerges that he is, in fact, a song, a song and dance man. You know, he was playing Charleston's and ragtime and pop hits and dance numbers, and he was an all-round entertainer. He was a kind of living jukebox, wasn't he? 
massive ladies' man and seducer. And so the old myth is slowly being dismantled. But which would we rather believe? Would we rather believe that he's this kind of haunted, uh, sandblasted, lone crusader pursued by Beelzebub in some sort of Arthur Rackham illustration? Or would we like to see <laughs> a breezy, crowd-pleasing entertainer, you know, going, I'm here all week. Yes. <laughs> I'll, I'll leave you with this. This is Hellhound on my trail. This song's always been very good to me. Lock the door, I want a captive audience. You know. Any requests, madam, you know. I mean, that's just, you know, you don't, that doesn't stack up, does it? And, and I just made me think this is so often the case, you know, that we picture musicians the way we want to picture them, and we will not accept what they might actually be like or that, that, that any of their, their act could be artificial. I love the idea. I love the idea that photos of Robert Johnson are going to keep on emerging at 10-year intervals. Yeah. Thus allowing authors of the future to kind of write another book about, about you know, what, what additional stuff we know. And I think the next cover in 10, 20 years' time will have a picture of Robert Johnson. He'll be wearing a straw boater. Yeah, with wearing a hoop. He'll be wearing a striped blazer, Okay. Yeah, and pay respects with the eyeballs falling out on springs. <laughs> <laughs> and he'd be linking arms. He'd be linking arms with Arthur Askin, Gracie Fields. <laughs> That's my prediction. Okay, so That's it. <laughs> look forward to it. With a new compilation repackaged called Toe Tapping Classics. That's right. Oh Lord, that's good. This is a word lockdown special. Call it herd immunity. It's always nice to hear from people out there, even if we haven't always got the time to uh, to read out everything. But we we do appreciate, we do read what people send in. So thanks very much to uh, to Clive Morris and to, to Phil Breyer, to Giles Fraser, from John Collins. I, I just want to mention Patrick Crowther because this is quite a, uh, quite a quick one. <laughs> I he, saw that. It was very funny. He comes up with three suggestions or two suggestions for a for a, a stack waddy game. Uh, this is which is the odd one out of the following, all taken from Melody Maker gig listings, November nineteen seventy one. I, I assume one's made up. Uh, these are Guff, Git, and Gollum. What do you think, Mark? Guff, well, Git, Go- Gollum has got to be true. I mean, that's just so of the time, isn't it? Gollum is bound to be real. I would have thought, and Git too. Git is a kind of classic, uh, kind of <laughs> underground rock name. It's got to be Guff. I think Guff is made up. I think I go. One, I go the same. Go on. Go on. And his other one was from a 1970s gig listing. He has Tiny Clanger. Yaffle and Hackensack. Well, I happen to know that Hackensack were real. They were. Uh, I do remember that. Hackensack is a place in, where is it, New Jersey? I New think Jersey. It's a really uh, good song about if I ever get back to Hackensack. Yeah, it's lovely. Right the song. It's a fabulous song. Um, so I, all I don't, I know, I, so I think Yaffle sound real to me as well. So I think. Tiny Clanger was probably made up. Uh, and why would anybody make up a name uh, of a band with that terminated in, e- in ER? Because we all know that all groups whose names finish in ER... Okay. Have the disastrous careers. And who are they? Fo- Long Dong. Foreigner. Long from Foreigner. Long <laughs> Long from foreigner. <laughs> Long, that's a great backstreet crawler. Yes. 
Yeah, they all sound kind of mechanical, don't they? They do. They all sound like machines. So so anyway, thanks, Patrick, for those uh, those suggestions. Uh, Thanks also to Bill Wright, for Craig Tigwell, uh, for Michael Cole, uh, for everybody who's been in touch with us. Please, Please keep those coming in. We really do appreciate hearing from people. Well, I've got a list in front of me, Mark, uh, which we cobbled together the other day, and I'm trying to remember why, of, of the longest-lasting... Oh, I'll tell you why, because I've mentioned to you that um, it's been 25 years since Lyle Lovett and Julia Roberts split up. Do you remember that? I mean, it was just an extraordinarily baffling relationship. I mean, it's wrong to try and, you know... Well, yes, outsider, it, you can't ever tell exa- these things. Exactly <laughs> why was it a, a baffling relationship? <laughs> no, well, well, it's, un- it's unkind, but I suppose it's because, um, you know, he was no oil painting, and she was considered to be just absolutely the most gorgeous-looking woman in the world at the time. So it did seem unusual, but no, it, it's wrong to project one's, uh, you know, one doesn't understand these things from the inside. But anyway, they, it, was an odd, it seemed an odd relationship, and they, uh, after 21 months, they split up. And we were talking about marriage that had survived in rock and roll for a long time and, and, and indeed a short time Gre- uh, Greg and, and, and Cher do you remember Greg Allman and Cher do you remember how long they were married for well it's slightly longer than you probably think I did this some because they, they they kind of fell out but I think they stayed married for longer than you'd think because I, I know so. what the shortest rock and roll marriage is I know the answer to this question what's well, shorter than Britney Spears that's the one Oh, right. Britney Spears and and that childhood friend, whoever it was, that she married and then thought better of halfway through the ceremony, didn't she? Britney Spears was married for 55 hours. I know this for a fact. (laughs) (laughs) And Greg Greg and and, and Cher, I think, split up after nine days. They didn't divorce for a while, but they did split up after nine days. I think. Am I right? But I think they got back together again. I think it was such... It was the classic mercurial affair you know i think it was they they were both utterly impossible you know and uh and you know i've always got the feeling about about it's always my suspicion about celebrity marriages that the reason they do it is they're addicted to attention yeah and once they're married they've got no attention and so the way to get attention again is break it off really quickly you know what i mean because what they like is the attention. And that's the advantage of the celebrity marriage, when both of them are famous, because you get the double the amount of attention, don't you? Yeah, I suppose so. Well, yeah, yeah more, than, more than double. More than, more double. than double. If yeah. you're marrying somebody, the girl next door, then it's not, not that big a deal. But, so uh, we've got, we got a list here, and uh, I'm going, you know, the quite modest ones uh, are now, you know, the sky is black with hats when we record the fact that Bruce Springsteen and Pascal Alpha have been married for, was it 27 years? 29 years. 29 years. Yeah, yeah. 1991, you know, with children and stuff. Didn't Bruce Springsteen, has he got two boys? I think he has. Um, Two boys and a girl, is that right? Yes, that's right. And uh, one of his boys became a fireman recently. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. that's that's, uh, rather good. Uh, Bono uh, of of you two, Bobo, uh, (laughs) has been married to Ali since 1982. See, that's, I think that's pretty fantastic. It is. 38 it's years. It's good. 
How long have you been married? I've been married 38 years too. We, we got married in 1982. But I mean, I'm slightly older than Bono. Um, not massively, but slightly. And he met her at school, didn't he? I mean, he met Ali when they were, I don't know, 15, weren't they in the same class? Oh, school? right, God, it's something So like he's that. actually known her for, I mean, how many years? I mean, that's phenomenal, isn't it? And also to have survived that length of time. I remember interviewing him and telling me about the, he told me about this kind of, um, uh, sort of depressurizing thing he does when he gets off, off, off tours. Do you know about that? No, go on. Well, she she's, she won't let him come home straight away. She, she puts him in a hotel around the corner in Dublin. And oh, really? spend a week kind of de, de, depressurizing and kind of getting back to normal. Because if you go straight off a U2 tour to home, it's impossible, as you might I bet, imagine. I bet, I bet. cannot go from... Just leave, leaves wet oh, towels everywhere. Yeah, yeah, oh, that, people yeah. do. You just, he just walks to the bedroom, leaves the TV on, that's right, scatters <laughs> towels on place. <laughs> Demands chocolates. Yes, he's looking, <laughs> looking, looking at Toblerone every yeah, all Toblerone. hours. Tiny little packets of crisps and little bit <laughs> miniatures of gin. That's right. <laughs> and wants to watch kind of you know cable TV at three in the morning. You know, and uh, <laughs> so it's, it makes him impossible to. I mean, you find so him, cool. you find him wandering down the hall looking for an ice machine in the middle of the night. That's he? right. Oh, that's that's quite a clever idea. So de- where's the health club? Yes, I can't, yeah. I can't smell the swimming pool. I'm off to the gym. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I've also got, I've got Martin Kemp and Shirley. See, that's pretty amazing. 1988. Years. Yeah. Is that 32 years, Martin? Yeah. God, it is now. Upstaged, interesting pop fact by Simon Le Bon, who's been married to Yasmin Le Bon for 35 years. I mean, that's good going, isn't it? That's very good going. I mean, it really when is. You can, when you yeah. consider that she, he was a pop star when they got married and she was a model. Exactly. Which is not normally the recipe for stability, no, is not it? A, not the most stable of relationships. No, that's astonishing. No, that's very good. Very good. And um, Randy Newman? Randy, good. well, Randy, second... you see, I'm just personally fascinated by Randy Newman's marriages. Two marriages. Marriage, he married his first wife in 1967. And they had, I think, three boys. And then they, they were divorced. And he, he married a uh, second wife. In 1990, he was still married to, and they had girls, I think. And he famously said that if we'd had, if I'd had the girls first, I would have thought the boys were retarded. <laughs> the boys behaved in such a different way. The boys just sat Isn't around, that all, true? Sat around all day punching each other. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and fifteen-year-old uh, boys just sit there eating Monster Munch and playing on an Xbox. Fifteen-year-old re- girls that are reading Proust and uh, you know having adult conversations. Yeah, plotting. Uh, yeah, yeah. Where, whereas he, Randy was really interesting because he, you know, he'd written songs about all kinds of things, but he's written two songs which he openly says are about his marriages, and um, the second one is is called "The World Isn't Fair," and it's supposed to be addressed to Clau- uh, to Karl Marx, to the ghost of Karl Marx. And he, and he has a verse in there, you know, that, that he recently got married and I stumbled into a young family. And he talks about going to the parents' evening at school, you know, the orientation, I think, as he calls it. And they, they, I went to the orientation. All the young mummies were there, you know. You'd never such seen such a wonderful sight as the beautiful creatures arrayed for the night. And they all looked like film stars. He said, and they all arrived with men, older men. Froggish, unpleasant to see. You know, so clear, clearly, froggish is a brilliant word. It's, isn't Holland, it? it's Hollywood. You know what I mean. So if you go to a parents' evening, the the profile of the parents is 
relatively, you know, 35-year-old, very well-turned-out mother and 55-year-old father on second marriage, you know, who's made a lot of money out of the film business or television business or whatever. And, and so Randy Newman uses this as part of his argument to Karl Marx. I'm sorry, Carl, the world isn't fair. That's the way it works. <laughs> anyway, he wrote, and he, uh, while married to the same wife who he's still married to, and I've no reason to believe they're not really happily married, he wrote a song, and this is a high risk. This is high risk in normal life, let alone in entertainment. He said, I'm going to write a song about my ex-wife. Oh, yes, it was called something like I Miss You or something. I Miss You. He wrote a song about the first wife called I Miss You. And it's a beautiful, wonderful, really simple song. And it's basically, I spent so much of my life with this woman and we had these children and we had this history. How could I possibly pretend I don't miss you? You know what I mean? Because it, it, it might be an indication of the immense security of his second marriage that, that he, he felt he could do that and his wife it possibly allowed him to do that. I mean, that's pretty amazing, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. But also, I think of the other, one of the other things he says in I Miss You, I haven't got it in front of me. He says, you know, I'd sell anything for a song and this is an idea for a song, you know, so forgive me, you know what I mean? It's an idea. I'll take it forward. Absolutely. Uh, and so he does that. So further, in the same way that columnists always say that everything's material, isn't it? You know, if you're yeah, a, yeah, yeah. If you're, a, if you're a newspaper columnist, you know, if you're Captain Moran or something, and every split second of the day, you must be thinking, I'm in the supermarket, I'm in the, you know, where I'm at the shops, I'm out. You know, my children have said this. You know, every observation is something you can you can yeah. monetize, really. Yeah, yeah. But I have to say that the winners of that uh, longest-lasting marriage, I think it's fair to say, are John Paul Jones of Led Zeppelin and, and Mo, his wife, who got married in 1967, hence have been together 53 years, and they only they are, are exceeded by Charlie and Shirley Watts, who got married in 1964. Now, that is amazing, don't you think? It is. That it 56 is. years ago, a member of the Rolling Stones got yeah. married and is still married to the same girl. But when she married him, she presumably had no reason to believe that this was going to go on this long. It, it would last if lucky he, 18 he, months. He had probably, you know, he'd probably, he worked in an advertising agency, didn't he? Or a design yeah. studio or something like that. And he jacked that in to go on tour with the Rolling Stones and had a few hit records. But, you know, it was probably only going to last for two or three years if you were lucky, you know. And look what it turned out. But my personal favourite of all the long-lasting marriages in popular music, is Peter Noon, Herman of Herman's Hurt, who married Mireille Strasser in 1968. And I think they're still together, aren't they? On his 21st birthday. That's right. On his 21st birthday, and they're still together. So, you know, raise our imaginary glasses to absolutely all of them. You know, happy days. Happy days. This is a lockdown special from The Word. You ain't going nowhere. A couple of interesting things that came out of the word in your attics, because people, people mention stuff, which I go away and think about, um, for which I'm very grateful. <laughs> we were talking to Murray Wilson. It was, it was lovely to talk to Murray Wilson. And you remembered uh, in, uh, introducing her on Whistle Test hundreds of years ago. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Doing Crimea River. And you said you still felt self-conscious 
about the fact that you described it as her you 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 described her her reading of the song rather than her version of the song you think it was really interesting you know and it got me thinking about that whole that whole business of how people describe those things because you know in back in those days and when we talking about the early 80s there was only something like her cover or her reading or whatever whereas now we've got all sorts of things the people talk about reimagining things don't they have you ever noticed that and um it's always a kind of dark reimagining uh, and and the other one is is reboot uh, has now become a term that that somehow doesn't suggest that the truth which is you don't have any original ideas of your own so you you're dusting off some old you're, war horse. you're stealing something else aren't you and and, <laughs> uh, and repurposing it <laughs> re-nosing it and uh and uh, you know yeah that's a repurposing is a good one yeah uh, it is re-nosing usually means just putting something different at the different front beginning it. isn't it different yeah beginning yeah. of it uh but but it's all it's all a question of making hack work seems somehow dignified exciting and dignified absolutely right <laughs> and the other thing that really interested me interested me uh, that rob fitzpatrick talked about about talking about how people consume music on streaming services being different from how they consumed it when they bought it took it home owned it and so forth is that uh, is that people increasingly want music for occasions and so by that by that index the most popular british group are now queen that's right he made that point i thought that was so interesting because his point was that queen had this huge diversity this huge variety of different types of music you got some scarf waving you know we are the champions type stuff you've got um you know crazy little thing called love you've got there's party music there's ballads there's just every single activity you could soundtrack to a queen song which makes them more usable if that's the right word than someone like the beatles because the beatles people tend to just listen to the beatles rather than apply that to some kind of uh, some kind of carry on and i thought that and that has made queen the most streamed and that's the most popular group in britain isn't that right that's the statistic isn't it and i you know i well believe it and yeah. um, and i think it's just interesting it's all part it's all of a piece with that um that thing we're also been talking about which is post the walkman yeah music became a soundtrack rather yeah. than a thing in itself and so yeah. queen i don't get the feeling people are sitting down at home thinking i'm going to play a night at the the opera but but they will get individual tracks because they they make them feel a certain thing yeah. at a certain moment and they really suit that moment and of course interestingly enough shall i tell you what i understand i am told that on the anniversary or near near enough to the anniversary of live aid which of course took place in what July the 13th July the 13th 1985 yeah. the BBC because they have no Wimbledon they have no Olympics they have acres of schedule to fill <laughs> and apparently it's going to be filled with a rerun of the whole of live I've heard this too yeah I, I, I'm sure it is and, and do you think that'll mean they'll start at 12 o'clock 
I and believe the so. entire thing in until four o'clock in the morning. In, in will they edit any of it, or is it just going to be completely the whole I rerun? I don't know, but I think basically the idea is to kind of recreate it. And so it's a little bit like I don't know if you've ever watched these. Some of my I don't watch it a huge amount of telly, but the thing I always watch when they reran one recently is the BBC election coverages coverage of past elections have you ever watched this where they rerun the 1979 election coverage or no, oh, no. It's, oh it's gripping viewing yeah. honestly because you know it's warts and all and it, it, it really is taking you back to the world as it was you know yeah. um in, in a very powerful way and so i imagine they're going to do the same thing same thing with live Aid. and so. a lot of the reason for that must be the the, the, the we're going to say it ourselves rebooting of Queen, Dave. <laughs> the I Queen movie so. has just sent them into the absolute stratosphere. And also, everybody has agreed that that relaunch of Queen happened at Live Aid. You know, they, they were the ones who went away, didn't they? The Who had just kind of cobbled together a set, hadn't they? and uh, actually it was blacked out through a technical form, most of it. But uh, but if I remember rightly, Queen had gone away and hired a studio in Shepparton or something and rehearsed for something probably like rehearsed. weeks to get their entire catalogue yeah. down to the, the greatest hits medley of 22 minutes. Or well, if they did, it was the best week's work any band has ever phenomenal. done. You know, because it, it, led to, it led to all this. But so, don't you think it's going to depend on good weather for that to work? Will that work on it? If it's a day like we're recording today, there's not a cloud in the sky, and they rerun the whole of Live Aid, people can go out and do have the barbecues and have the big speakers in the garden and do all that. I feel it's rather dependent on, on good weather. <laughs> yes, yeah, you, you might be right. I think you, so. Can, you might well that's, be what, right. that's what made it work on the day. And, and as, as is my theory that I've bored you with many times before, that, that it was Live Aid that created. The stadium circuit. It did. Because up till then, people are just a, they were sort of playing, you know, arenas. But suddenly everybody thought they'd given up going to gigs. Watched that on the television. And saw all these bands like Spandau Ballet and Ultravox and, and, and Sade. People are apparently filling a giant 80,000-seat stadium. And thought, that looks absolutely brilliant. It gave you a completely false impression about how popular some of those groups actually were. Shall I tell you what it, it was? was? their crowd, you know. July the 13th, 1985, marked the beginning of the age of spectacle. And we've just seen the ending of it. You're listening to The Word Podcast, where the time is whenever you want it to be. So just a few things before we go. Um, thank you very much for your support on, on Patreon, if you've, uh, if you've signed up to that. And if you haven't, there'll be details on how you can do that underneath this podcast. Um, you know, just to enumerate the numerous benefits is that apart from the warm glow that you get knowing that you've ha- helped contribute to keeping Bollocks Island <laughs> above the ocean, yes, that, which, is a, which is no small thing in itself, is it, Mark? No, it is, I like the way people now write and refer to our podcast as Bollocks Island because we refer to it. I mean, that was the old thing from from uh, from Mojo Magazine. Me and Paul Denoyer, yeah, Jim Irvin, Jim Irvin, Jim Irvin, who remembered it. We used to have our, all our three desks were together. We just sit there on Bollocks Island, just inventing amusing things to write about. So, if, yes. if you want to get in touch with us, you can either email us. Or you can put a little bit of paper in a bottle, address it to Bollocks Island, and just put it in the ocean. 
and it will eventually find us, won't it? You know, by that, by that and same. And we'll get it. We will get it by that same route. So, apart from that feeling, what do you also get? You get the podcast early, so which is no small thing. You also get the secret key that gives you entry to our Friday the Weekend Starts Here quiz, which is, I, I should now stress, takes place on Friday evenings at six o'clock. Uh, don't be late. If you're a Patreon supporter, we'll send you a Zoom link so you can actually take part in the lovingly, uh, you know, uh, lovingly fashioned popular music identity quest uh, <laughs> trivia game it is very good i have to say it's it's gripping entertainment and uh, and building all the time arrive uh, early and you might you know if you win a couple of times you might see yourself go up the leaderboard and overtake the people who are at the front now it's never too late to join you know definitely you can definitely catch them up uh, and also i should say we're soon going to be uh, launching what we're calling podcast gold, because we've uh, we've actually come up come upon uh, a cache of uh, invaluable, very early word podcasts. Well, actually, podcasts right throughout the the history of the podcast, which it goes back a long way, doesn't it, Mark? It's it does. Years, it goes back years. to two thousand and six. Is that right? Fourteen. Uh, years? Uh, yeah, fourteen years. Sorry, 40, that's and a long old time. We were pioneers, Dave. Absolutely. You know, all the Louis Theroux, Harry Vist, I'm saying. <laughs> Where have you been, everybody else? You know, we, we were doing this long. We ago. went travelled west with our picks and shovels. We started the gold rush. We did, um, and. Uh, the full-length versions of, of some of the ones that were, you may have only heard the shorter version of uh, when Word Magazine was publishing. Uh, and so some of these are going to be made available to you uh, with new tops and uh, new intros. We're going to re-nose them, aren't we, Mark? We're re-nosing them, let's be frank. Uh, and, and those will be available to Patreon supporters. So if you feel if you feel you can... Uh, add your name to that illustrious role of honour, please do so. Uh, but otherwise, we'll be back with you as soon as possible with uh, more Word in Your Attic fun, more Word in Your Ears next week, uh, Friday night quiz. We're everywhere, aren't we, Mark? And we should mention the names of the new patrons. Oh, go on, go on. Have you got them there? We? Got we, them. Should, we should read them out. Yeah, I think we should be. We well, have. I've just got, I've just got a little email here. It's just arrived. We want to thank very much the tumultuous Andrew Tanner, uh, the bountiful Philip Breyer, the, uh, the magnificent Mark Thomas, uh, the resplendent Robbie Yates, uh, the cracking Paul Kramer, as in Kramer versus Kramer. Oh, very good. The admirable Aaron Peters, the ever generous uh, Graham Slight, and the glad handing Gavin Taylor. So thanks so much for that. Thank you very much to all thank of them. Um, very much appreciated. God bless you. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Hold up. What was that? 
Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.